When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. In the game of the tournament, Germany edged Portugal in a six-goal thriller in Bavaria. France was stunned in Budapest, only saving a point late on in Hungary, as Group F has lived up to the billing thus far, at least, as the Group of Death. Meanwhile in Group E, Spain were a penalty miss away from going top. Instead, they now have to go into the final day against Slovakia, needing a win to be sure of qualification, whilst Poland, of course, clung on to desperate hope of last 16 progression. I am Jake from What If Football. This is the 14th edition of the Euro Daily podcast here on the... Acast, Amazon, Spotify and Apple where you can, if you're on those platforms of course, give us a like, subscribe and if you're feeling generous, enjoying the show, give us that five star review which I always ask for on this uh, show. We're also on Patreon of course, patreon.com forward slash whatifootball where there will be seven days a week, 50 weeks a year content after the European Championships, nostalgic football podcasts, contemporary football podcasts and football manager content on there as well. But let's get stuck into today's show and we start with an absolute banger in Bavaria. So both sides went into this game unchanged from the first outing. Of course, Germany were bouncing back or attempting to bounce back from that loss to France at home. Meanwhile, Portugal, they changed from Budapest to Munich off the back of a late, 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 late 3-0 win. Now, early on, there were warning signs for Portugal. Germany got out of the blocks quite quickly, didn't they? Uh, Joshua Kimmich's dangerous crosses, again, a, uh, a staple of the first game against France. They were dangerous again from deep. And the Portugal fullbacks didn't really know what to do with the the marauding wingbacks of Germany. Also, you had Robin Gersons. If he didn't win Man of the Match, officially by UEFA, he should have done. Um, he was playing extremely high on the left. Kai Havertz was dropping deep. And um, striking shots from uh, outside the box. Another warning sign across the bows of Portugal, of course. Portugal just couldn't deal with... They couldn't deal with Gerson's, obviously. They're missing João Cancelo as well because of the COVID um, COVID infection that he's received. And obviously, he's out of the, t- the rest of the tournament. 
and in his place Nelson Semedo just wasn't he wasn't up to wasn't up to Gerson's high high offensive hugging the touchline coming in and Germany's joy really was found from the whip for the crosses. Uh, Portugal were far far too patient in possession possession. They were sloppy, they were slow, turgid, all the things that we don't like in football in twenty twenty one really. Meanwhile Germany were going quite direct, going fairly long. They were mainly pushing out on the wings, getting crosses in for the uh for the rotating cast of three man attack there with uh, Gnabry pulling wide. Havertz and Muller were kind of interchanging, but uh, both dropping fairly deep. And in terms of crossing, they're not the three men you'd want. But as we saw, as the game progressed, it was the sort of best way that the sort of best avenue for Germany, especially when you when they got not deep crosses, but close closer to the byline. And obviously, the wing backs tucked in with Gerson's, especially in the second half, um, airily as well. Uh, but the first goal wouldn't go. By the way, of the team that was playing the best, not the quote-unquote best, better team. It was, of course, by Portugal's counter. Their first venture forward, really, the first shot on target for them. It was a stunning team goal. Bernardo Silva to Jota to Ronaldo. Absolutely brilliant, superb goal. And for what is a what is a fairly dour team, fairly defensively set up team with that double pivot that just doesn't really, they're not really mobile. They're more shuttlers, they're more deep ahead of the four and then they've just got four attacking talents there this is the perfect goal to score against a run of play on the counter attack and now with 75 minutes to go they could now sit back see what Germany could see what they could throw at them and hopefully um, from a Portugal perspective at least see the game out and perhaps pick them off on the counter again as we've seen in the first game where France pretty much just run ragged of course Portugal don't have the same kind of pace that France do, but they do have the intricate, composed, tricky attackers like uh, Bernardo Silva, who provided the fantastic ball for Jota. Jota is very direct in his running as well. And of course, <laughs> the uh, finisher at the heart of it, Cristiano Ronaldo, you, you wouldn't want any of anybody else really, could you? And Portugal kind of had that incisiveness going forward. They looked frightening every time they went forward. They, look as a, they looked as though they were going to going to create a really good chance and in that Germany Antonio Rudiger was being pulled back everywhere I didn't like them defensively at all and the first half war on Germany were getting more and more ponderous with the ball they weren't using the same avenues as the as the first sort of 15 minutes where they were going going direct going really offensively kind of like it was like they were second thinking second thoughts in the mind which passed to play because they were too scared of getting it incorrect. And then the first goal came and obviously that opened a bit. The floodgates a little bit. It was strikingly similar. They had a disallowed goal, of course. We had a Joshua Kimmich diagonal ball to Gerson. So the wing-backs, obviously, were the main threats for Germany all day. And this proved in the first first goal. Gerson's smashes the ball across. Ruben Diaz puts through his own net. It looked like a Kai Havertz goal at first, but again, Ruben Diaz. And that's... To be fair, that was a similar avenue for the for the Mats Hummels own goal. And as it turned out, all the goals in the uh, first half, at least on this half of the pitch, were own goals. And 60% of the own goals scored at this tournament have been in Munich, have been in this particular half of the uh, Allianz Arena as well, which is just a small quirk of this championship so far. And again, the second goal, second Germany goal, came from the left channel. Thomas Muller is... He picks up the ball in absolutely acres. The the defensive double pivot would 
some for some reason in the opposite channel they were both absolutely nowhere near him obviously this, you could boil this down to um exceptional ram data in from uh, Thomas Muller he was investigating them open spaces on the left uh, left channel just outside the box but you've got to ask questions there of Portugal defensively the double pivot that's usually really strong in Carvalho and Danilo absolutely nowhere near Thomas Muller and if there's a, a German player if the ball's on the deck and there's a player just sort of like 25 yards out in the channels that you don't want it to fall for from a defensive point of view. It's definitely Thomas Muller, isn't it? And obviously that leads to an own goal because of course it does. It's that half of the pitch in Munich. Obviously that that run would end in the uh, that run would end in the second half with Portugal's second goal, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. Serge Gnabry, I thought, aside from the very obvious wing-back width that Germany possessed and were just hitting Portugal again and again and again, Gnabry, I thought, Showed a little bit of something different for Germany. It showed a little sprinkling of quality on the uh, counter for Germany, which I wrote in my notes, a sign for the second half, but Portugal were never going to, or rather Germany were never going to sit deep and Portugal were never going to fling themselves forward at the ball because they, they just weren't. And they should really have broken free from the defensive shackles. I know Fernando Santos is fairly wedded to it, isn't he? Because... He's, he's got good reason to they won a European Championships five years ago because of it. Um, but obviously, either side of that, not really done too much by the way of um, success. Obviously, the last World Cup, they went out early on. Um, they, they're in serious peril of going out in the groups. Um, third place, goal difference, depending if they do lose to France in that um, in that final game next week. But we go to the second half. Renato Sanchez came on for Bernardo Silva, which you got to... You got to say, really, that must have been an injury because Bernardo Silva played played well, and Sanchez isn't. He's not necessarily a like for like um, substitution, and obviously the the shape of the team would change a bit. Sanchez is a bit more um, a bit more central, but he can he has got that dynamism to play out wide for Portugal. Portugal had to press, but it was just for the entire second half when they should have been going out and getting the. Uh, Getting that second goal, attempting to push Germany a little bit harder. The press, I thought, was very half-assed. And um, continuously, it, when um, smaller teams, no offence, like a Hungary or whatever, but a Hungary don't do this because they're set up very well. Um, when they let somebody do something, a certain thing, again and again and again, in the in, even in one half of football, surely at the second or even like the third or fourth time, if they don't continue to do it, we say, oh, they're a small team, that's fair enough. But Portugal were letting Robin Gersons in absolutely acres of space on the left again and again and again. And every goal came through these channels. Gersons into Havertz, easy third goal. And then shortly after, Gersons heads in on the back post. And then in the blink of an eye, it's 4-1 and the game's gone. And for a team like this, a team like Portugal, who we've been saying should be like in the top eight teams to uh, that, that, that can win this tournament, possibly in the top three or four. For them to be so defensively shoddy like this and not see, sniff out the danger is just absolutely mind-boggling. And at this point, obviously, with the rate of goals going in, my mind went racing back to 7-1, um, obviously. Um, but it's just, I think it, if Cancelo was there, maybe we would have been able to stop it. But I think it's a problem for... 
players further up as well because Samedo was left kind of isolated again. Um, the double pivot, it wasn't doing its job, uh, to put it uh, bluntly and simplistically. And um, I felt feared for Portugal there and the counter-attack wasn't as incisive. They didn't look as dangerous going forward. And that second goal that they got came from a, came from a set piece that Germany just switched off from, which is a, an indictment on them as well. Diogo Jota scoring the first goal in that half of the pitch in Munich. That isn't a known goal and it was a header from about four centimetres out. I thought Portugal was sloppy. Rafael Guerrero, he wasn't getting as high as he was in the first game in that left flank. Portugal had the same problems as Germany. Germany defensively, I do not think they're right whatsoever. And that's one of the main reasons why I don't think Germany can go all the way. I fear for them defensively and teams that win tournaments are more robust defensively, keep clean sheets. Germany, they conceded two here against a Portuguese side that they could have, they would have in, say if it was 2014, they would have thrashed them 4-0 and they did thrash them 4-0 in uh, Brazil, didn't they? And it was a similar type of game here, obviously completely different system and personnel. But the man in the dugout, Yogi Love, remains and I think defensively they're just not there. They will get there, I think, well, they've got to really to in order to win the tournament. I like the front three to put a positive on it for Germany in what was, to be fair, a good performance. It was a really good win, wasn't it? But in terms of going all the way and being German about it, and because you can't discount Germany, of course you can't. And I just, I am discounting them here, let's be honest. But that's only because of the expectations I hold for Germany personally. Perhaps it's because as an English fan, I've been burnt by them before when we've been uh, quote-unquote favourites. 2010 springs to mind, of course, the 4-1 defeat there. But going forward, they do have a an interchangeable front three and plenty of options. And in terms of Joshua Kimmich, I'm I still am of the opinion that he should be playing centre mid. But I can see his qualities from right wing back, and especially if Klosterman isn't fit or isn't up to being fit, he didn't come on in this game, then I can see why he's playing there because he does provide an attacking impetus for Germany out on the right. And obviously, football is now a flexible game, and it's not just. Uh, you can play eight, an eight, or you can play as a six, of course. Portugal, can they win it? Uh, after this performance, it defensively, again, you, I can't remember if there was ever a team that conceded four goals in a tournament and then won it. Of course, Portugal conceded three against Hungary and then went on to win it, which was a complete departure from from their, their style, really. they were it was That was a gung-ho game of football, that with Hungary. Attempting to win the group, Portugal attempting to win it too, and ended up finished third. And of course, let's not forget that um, Portugal finished third in 2016 in Group F as well, um, which has no bearing on it really, I don't think. But in terms of in terms of this team, Bruno Fernandes, I'm not um, I'm not quite sure he's at it fitness wise at all. He looks completely running to the ground and. Uh, Although Bruno doesn't have the same influence on his national team, he's, they've still got enough there to be an attacking threat to any team, really. And obviously they showed here with that first goal, it was just mesmeric, really, wasn't it? And in terms of finishing third, I think that could be the best option for Portugal, really. Because if they finish third, they'll likely play the Netherlands in the in the last 16. And that is, as I said in the team preview video, all the way back when before the tournament. That's like a flip of a coin game. And what we've seen from both teams so far, I think they're probably a lot closer than what we thought before the tournament, but I still think that Portugal slightly edge it. 
obviously the Netherlands play a three at the back like Germany did and Portugal have been burnt by Germany to, uh, last night. But they're there to be got out in the co- in the counter-attack, I believe, Netherlands, um, especially if they push so high defensively like they did in the first game and a little bit less in the second game. But again, teams tactically are probably perfecting, still perfecting the uh, the uh, intricacies of their tactics. And um, obviously, in, if Portugal do win that, it's likely to be one of Wales, Denmark, Finland or Russia in the quarterfinals, which again is Probably an easier game than the last 16. Obviously, Wales won't be an easy fixture. Obviously, Portugal knocked them out of the semi-finals last time. But before you know it, then Portugal from finishing third are in the semi-finals again. And that could be a reuniting with Germany at Wembley. It could be England, of course. That's not ruled them out yet. So it could be any number of teams. So finishing third in Group F isn't too much of a bad thing and obviously with France to come next their um, place in the in the last 16 in the knockout phases is by no means assured is it let's be honest uh, it could come down to goal difference but if the Portugal get a draw they should be in the hat shouldn't they really for the uh, last 16 after this short break 2021 trivial teaser and yeah, I didn't make it quite easy this time, but uh, we do have four correct answers. Of course, after that, we'll be covering France versus Hungary and Spain versus Poland. So the answer yesterday was, of course, Jude Bellingham. He's played alongside Erling Haaland and he's played alongside Scott Hogan. It could be nobody else, could it really? Well done to Maracas Flute, well done to George, Jake and Pazza for getting that one correct. Today I'm still a centre midfielder. I've played underneath Otmar Hitzfeld and Jürgen Klinsmann. Some of my teammates have been Gareth Bale, Mark Van Bommel, Luca Toni, Aidan Hazard and Sergio Ramos. I'm a central midfielder who has played underneath Otmar Hitzfeld and Jürgen Klinsmann. Some of my teammates have been Gareth Bale, Mark Van Bommel, Luca Toni, Eden Hazard and Sergio Ramos. You can find out the answer tomorrow on tomorrow's show. Alternatively... Tweet me at whatif underscore YouTube if you think you know the answer, if you think you're a smart ass like me. Anyway, after this short break, we'll be covering France versus Hungary and Spain versus Poland as the second round of group stage fixtures are officially over. Welcome back. So we're going to stay in Group F with France and Hungary. Now, obviously, stick around to the end of the show. We'll be covering the uh, previews for the final fixtures in Group A, sadly. Yesterday was the final game, the final day, where we saw a 2pm kickoff, which is sad times. No three staggered games in the European Championships, unfortunately. But we push on. France versus Hungary in Budapest. A lively 60,000 in the Puskas Arena. And, thankfully, for a sort of home and away balance, a lot of French contingent in Hungary as well. I think around three or 4,000 were there. I'm not too sure, anyway. The sides make, made uh, one change each with uh, Nego coming in for, for uh, Lavrentis at the right wing back role for Hungary. Meanwhile, Luca Dina made a replacement for Hernandez on the uh, left back berth. So changes for both teams in uh, out wide defensively. And Hungary, probably backed by the crowd there, started on absolute fire. They were smashing uh, France's defenders, running at them and... Came out of the blocks really well, and that's what you'd expect, really. It was obviously five-minute bursts that Hungary would do because they were buoyed on by the crowd. But I thought defensively, Hungary were very, very good, obviously setting up in this 5-3-2, 3-5-1, uh, 
3-5-2. It was more of a 5-3-2, the way France were attacking at times, obviously. And um, we've seen from the first game, Roland Chaloy was causing problems in that left channel, in the right channel. He was, he was a nuisance all game for Hungary. So were that. So was um, Adam Saloy before. Unfortunately, he uh, had to be taken off. So now you've got Hungary without Subozlai, who obviously is missing the tournament, and uh, Adam Saloy, who is their their captain, their leader. And I think it was... I thought he went off with concussion, but I've been hearing recently that he must have been uh, sunstroke, which is um, kind of bizarre. Hopefully he'll be back for the next game against um, against Germany, uh, which is an away tie now. Hungary will... Uh, depart Budapest and go to Munich and getting a win in Germany will not be uh, easy which of course after this 1-1 draw is what they will need to qualify. Neusch was uh, progressing the ball very well for Hungary in the middle of the park. You've got uh, Fiola was exceedingly high up on the left wing back berth when uh, that was probably their main uh, source of source of um, progressing the ball getting high up the pitch when uh, Hungary needed it. Obviously Fiola would run the channel obviously Roland uh, Shaloi would uh, drift out and uh, meet the play and create those little triangles that we are loving football, don't we now, tactically? Anyway, Antoine Griezmann was uh, was sort of penetrating his runs quite well. He pounced on a rebound, a fantastic double save from Peter Galashi. Of course, it would be offside, but if it went in, but little one sign there for Hungary. Kante was getting forward as well in his more favoured uh, box-to-box role that he perfected really for. Chelsea in the second half of the season under Thomas Tuchel and the France system for me that's why it works so well that's why if it, if they're playing a 4-3-1-2 it works fantastically there's that understanding between Rabiot, Pogba and Kante who, who's going to drop deep who's going to push forward obviously they can change to a 4-2-3-1 if they, uh, if they need a goal which they did uh, later on but I think that's where France have the edge tactically why they will um why they will probably go all the way is because of this 4-3-1-2. Kante, obviously, we kind of lazily label him in this quote-unquote Makalele role, but he's been at his best. He's been sort of coming to the fore for the Ballon d'Or shouts and um, with this box-to-box, more of an eight, sort of, I don't know, we call Kane a nine-and-a-half. Is Kante a six-and-a-half, more of an eight-and-a-half? Who knows, but I, that's just uh, semantics there. But he's getting forward and... France were very strong, looked very strong. The delivery was great from France as well on the flanks. Mbappe had a header wide, but I thought France were just a little bit, they were just a little bit wasteful in front of goal. But they grew into the game. Hungary were very uh, resolute in their defending, as they often are. But it's them runs that I think, despite the scoreline, I um, still hold out hope for. France from their perspective because the runs that they were making in the final third were just phenomenal. Mbappe was uh, busting a gut to get forward. Griezmann's vision was peerless at times and Benzema was peeling off the back and you had that little flick by Mbappe which was incredible, wasn't it? The way to bring it down from the Griezmann pass to pass it to Benzema and that that little move, obviously it didn't go in Benzema. I don't know if it was a purposeful fade but Faded the ball wide of the post, but in a microcosm to me, that the dynamics of those three, even with you know Benzema was coming for the coming for Olivier Giroud, and uh, there's potential that that could upset the sort of balance of the team. But you could see there the three there, the way they combined the microcosm, that they'll go on and win the tournament there because uh, just the way they were interacting with one another. Germany have 
almost there in terms of that, but the quality of the three that they've got is com- obviously on a different level. It's not comparable, really, to Mbappe, Griezmann and Benzema when you've got um, a whole host of three that Germany could play. Havertz, Gnabry and Muller it was yesterday, but in terms of France's three, I think they're just... Um, just a rung above everyone and the way they're interacting is just fantastic but still France were wasteful in front of goal in terms of look though I think Hungary's set up the 5-3-2 how rigid they were defensively and they just putting the bodies on the line for the for the uh, for the cause there I thought Hungary were very good in terms of sitting deep handling what France have to offer and I do think that it's very, it's very unfortunate for Hungary the way that they've uh, the cards they've been dealt in terms of dropping into Group F with the three teams that have won the last few major tournaments with, you know, Portugal in 2016, France in 2018, Germany in 20, 2014. It is unfortunate because I think if, I think if Hungary, what you see here, even without their key player in uh, Shabozlai and even with Soloy there going off, injured their captain, their leader, they still, I think they're a good tournament team in terms of that, like a bit like Wales, no one expected Wales to. No one's expecting Wales to replicate their semi-final from 2016. But the team spirits there, they're set up well. I think if Hungary were in, let's say, obviously they couldn't because they were, you know, drawn into uh, Budapest's Group F, isn't it? So they were always going to be in Group F. But if they had different teams in there, say if they were in like a quality group, it was uh, Netherlands, Ukraine, Austria, North Macedonia. They'd have, let's say, they replace North Macedonia in there. They'd have probably qualified from that group because they are a good tournament team in that setup-wise, they're perfect. Obviously, you've got Kleinheisler uh, bursting from midfield as well as Neu. And I just think if they've had him, obviously, you can't, even if they wouldn't have had him, which they don't, they would have still done very well. They would have got through. They would have done what they did in 2016. And it just seems that team spirit there would have got them over the line in terms of qualifying. Obviously, they've been dealt a horrific hand here, playing three of the uh, three of the best teams in Europe. Obviously, Attila Saloy as well, I think he's been fantastic in defence, an absolute rock. I think it might be a bit too soon because he's only been at Fenerbahce, I think, for six months, but he'll earn himself a move soon off the back of this time. He's just been absolutely fantastic at centre-half. And the goal came from that left channel. Kleinheiser was always a willing runner as well. You've got Fiola with Brooke, the deadlock. He was run from uh, left wing back and the shock finished beyond Larice, And it was just fantastic to see. The celebrations were superb, wasn't it? Um, and even in these rare breakaways from Hungary, they had that little incisiveness there from Fiola and the celebration was, you know, fantastic. Obviously, it's gone around the world now. That, that poor woman being shocked half to death and then realised that no, it was Hungarians and celebrating with them. Uh, fantastic to see, especially in front of a huge crowd in Budapest, home crowd. And Hungary, probably, even though they didn't have the balance of play, I think how they've set up in this tournament, how they've reacted, I think they deserved it, really. But as we get into the second half, Pogba, he was working through the gears. He had two decent attempts in the, uh, in the uh, second half. But an hour in, then you see Hungary digging right in and sitting extremely deep and Dembele France had to change it because the 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 pattern of the game was there it was defense versus attack and obviously Deschamps saw that Dembele came on made it more of a 4-2-3-1 and in the end 
all it needed for all the pretty play, the interchangeability between the three that they have like for France. All it needed was a long punt up field and a slight bit of composure for Griezmann. And he finished the ball off and it well, equalised, which is depressing from a Hungarian point of view. And neutral, I would love to see Hungary. It would have blown the group wide open, wouldn't it, uh, if Hungary beat France here? And um, in the end, yeah, a bit of quality shone through in the end. But Hungary have given themselves a a great um, acquittal here. And I think they'll cause Germany some problems. You see if um, the, mis- the uh, matching of styles, I think, in terms of the five at the back, will help with the width of Germany um, in that th- third and final group game with um, Gersens and Kimmich being very offensively against Portugal uh, last night. I think Hungary will deal with them a lot better and I think they'll be set up a lot better. And a point obviously won't be enough for Hungary, but two points from this group would be absolutely astounding for Hungary. And in terms of France, I'm not, I'm not going to compare them to England but they've won the harder game on paper. They've dropped points in the lesser game. They're all but through. The only thing I can think that could possibly be their downfall is their wastefulness. We'll see. I think a goal for Benzema in this third and final game is crucial because it will bring that confidence for him going into the last 16 and we'll see a completely revitalised French team going into that last 16 and that could probably be the steam that pushes them a bit further on. Of course, wastefulness in one singular game, that can happen to anybody. And Group F now looks like this. Four points for France, three for Germany. Portugal have three. Portugal have one plus goal difference there. And Hungary have one point. So a a win for Hungary would see them through. There is a... uh, Yeah, they will go through because a a win over Germany would uh, see Germany possibly even out because, of course, Germany still have three points. The winner of the group faces a third place team from group A, B or C, which is looking likely to be Switzerland if they go through, Denmark, Finland or Russia in group B and Ukraine or Austria, whoever loses that contest or if there's a draw in that one in group C. Now, in terms of winning the group, group F, that is a favourable result, obviously. Uh, France still have to go to go play Portugal in, um, in Budapest, which will be a fantastic game of football, one of the probably the biggest game in terms of the result and what hinges on that entire game. Obviously you've got two huge teams there. Repeat obviously of Euro 2016, so it's going to be a fantastic tie. Um, second is the winner of Group D, of course, as we know this when we, uh, if you live in the UK, you've had this ram down your throats. The winner of Group D awaits if you finish second in this group, which could be any of these teams now, which is the beauty of the final day. Obviously, year of 2016, there was a lot of dead rubbers in the final final round of group fixtures. The head-to-head doesn't work. So for, say, example, in Group C, Ukraine can't go above the Netherlands now because Ukraine have lost to the Netherlands. Obviously, I think that's a bit more fair in terms of goal difference because the Netherlands could win 1-0 and 1-0 and then Ukraine could go above them by smashing someone 5-0, for example. So in terms of that, it does it's more fair, but in terms of entertainment value, not sporting value. It head-to-head does sometimes bring out dead rubbers. Euro 2016, we saw that a lot. This time, I don't think we are going to really... Um, obviously, the winner of Group D could be England or Czech Republic in that um, in that group. So, obviously, whoever finishes second will be hoping... I don't know. Would they be hoping for England, perhaps? Uh, perhaps they would, because Czech Republic have looked very, very good and quite dangerous in that left 
with uh, Yankto and Schick in there. And obviously third place, as we discussed with Portugal, would be the Netherlands, or it could be, alternatively, it could be Belgium, which I know who I'd rather face, put it that way. And now on to Spain versus Poland. Now, there were a whole raft of changes for Poland, which was uh, probably set off by the uh, suspension for Gregor Skrachowiak. And we had uh, Pushas come in on the uh, left wing back row. You've got Jakob Murder coming in and you've got Swiderski coming in for Lanetti. Alternatively, Gerard Moreno came in for Ferran Torres. So it was a bit more, um, definitely I called for Gerard Moreno to start. Obviously, yeah. Uh, whether that was positive or negative. On the whole, I think it was positive. Poland, though, were causing Spain problems. They had an arguable penalty shout early on. You had uh, Mateusz Klick going close from distance as well. They were pressing quite high early on. They were definitely they definitely offered a lot more than Sweden in the first game. But um, as the game settled into a bit of a rhythm, the tiki-taka style was prevalent. Poland couldn't get out as much. They were... I thought Poland were fairly sloppy early on in their rare ventures out of the, uh, out of the defensive third. Gerard Moreno, he offered something a little little different. He had um, the goal, the first goal, well, Spain's only goal came in from a cutting in and it was sort of like, I'm pretty sure it was a shot, wasn't it? Um, Falmerata and he stuck it in, which uh, originally got ruled out, but thankfully uh, for Spain at least, it um, got overturned because of the strain left leg from the Polish defender and obviously who was on this podcast yesterday calling for Morata to be dropped, but the work was done by Moreno. And uh, both converged on quite possibly Spain's worst moment of the tournament so far, but uh, we'll get to that. Spain were very sluggish in possession. Again, obviously, this is their style. Um, Poland, though, they had to come out and get a goal. So tiki-taka is probably a defen- more a defensive style of play than an attacking because in keeping the ball... You've got the advantage. Uh, you, you, if you keep the ball and play it slowly, keep that slow tempo, it'll wear the opposition down. Will they then come out and play? Poland had to. Lewandowski was probably the only sharp tool that Poland had. Really, had a teasing cross, cross for uh, Swiderski, but he put it over bizarrely. Should have used his head, and he just clipped it over the bar with his foot for some reason. Swiderski would hit the post. Um, but then Lewandowski, uncharacteristically really, he sort of rushed his rushed his rebound and it just came out of nowhere. For Bayern Munich, he puts that in the back of the net. I, I don't know if they, that's intangible, isn't it? But if he if he's in a Bayern Munich shirt, he slots that away. If, say if it's against Augsburg in the Bundesliga, no offence to Augsburg in the Bundesliga because they're a very good team. Um, in terms of Spain, tactically, Moreno was almost like a second striker with Morata. He was cutting in. He was pretty much central with Morata, with um, Marcus Drenthe going um, high up the right. I don't think he did it enough, though. Like, obviously, you can draw parallels to Kimmich. But Spain are playing in a 4-3-3 here, and obviously there's still that threat of Lewandowski going back. And I think if Spain played a three at the back and with Llorente in a right wing-back role, that would definitely work. Um, Obviously, they're not going to... I can't remember if Spain have ever played three at the back, certainly not in my lifetime. So... Spain was sloppy in the start of the second half. Let's get it straight. And finally it came. Lewandowski, his third tournament goal ever. One in 2012, one in 2016. And now in 2020, 2021 really, the win it. Um, a superb cross, a great cross, um, uh, Kamil Josuiak. Um, good build-up from Jakob Murder as well. I thought he, he will warrant a place in the team for the uh, for the game against Sweden. And I think Murder was very good in the uh, heart of the midfield for Poland and... Instantly, Poland just reverted back to desperate defending. 
and you've got Moreno winning the penalty almost instantly. And on commentary, Danny Murphy didn't think it was a penalty. It was a clear stamp on his ankle. I don't know what sort of... Uh, uh, yeah, it's bizarre, wasn't it? Um, I don't know what monitor he was watching it on. Maybe it was like a uh, one of them spy cameras, but he's watching it from very far. God knows, God knows. Um, so Portugal back against the wall again, and in perhaps one of the most bizarre passages of playing the tournament so far, Moreno takes up the penalty, strikes it against the post, and then Morata is on the rebound. He's going to score, but we then remember it's Alvaro Morata and he unfortunately puts a rebound wide it might not stood he might have encroached I'm um, not too sure on that one but um, in terms of Spain's penalty wars at European Championships shootouts aside of course it was their sixth penalty miss in uh, regulation play in 11 in European Championships history which is absolutely astounding really when you consider that they're, they've won three they've won three of the tournaments and they've got a negative Penalty record from open play, which is just mind-boggling anyway. Polish heads were threatening to go in a dis- disciplinary sense, in a defensive sense as the game wore, and I think there were a little bit of nerves creaking in. They were giving away three headers away in the box, just willy-nilly. They, they were living dangerously, but Spain were even less impressive to me than in the first game. And in the first game, it was a cagey affair. It was, it was very attritional. This game, though, was more open but Spain still couldn't find, they didn't find as I don't, I haven't checked the stats, but I'm pretty sure they didn't have as many chances in this game. And the chances that they did have, they should have tucked away. They've now scored one goal in the past three games, you know, before the, before the tournament and obviously in the tournament. I really do fear for them in terms of their goal scoring. Morata missed another sitter with a few minutes left on the clock and it is now the eighth tournament that Spain haven't won their first two games in. And for Spain to do well in the tournament, for them to get far, for them to get into the, quarterfinals, the semi-finals, they need to pick up the pace a lot more. Obviously, the continued display of Jared Moreno would be would be handy to have. It is more of a slanted 4-3-3, which I think I think that's the way to go for Spain. Obviously it's not um conventional, but he I think was probably the best talent going forward. Of course he missed the penalty, but that's you know one off one off thing. Murata I think I think he'll get a lot of confidence from scoring the goal. Obviously, it was a tapping, but still, you'll have that confidence. And you'd hope from, if you're Spain, um, playing Slovakia next, not the best team at this championships, as we know, but they beat Poland and Spain couldn't. So, I mean, what does that say? And Slovakia will come to Seville and they'll do what Sweden did and sit deep, hope to get the point which they need to qualify. Obviously, a point for Spain would be absolutely disastrous because three draws from three obviously we saw Portugal do that in 2016 but obviously these are intangibles and they don't correlate whatsoever because it's a completely different team but if they do finish third they will either face the Netherlands or Belgium and two games which would be fantastic to watch the Netherlands I'd probably yeah the Netherlands I'd definitely fancy them more against because um, they'll push forward they'll allow Spain to play more and they won't sit deep they can't they don't I don't think Netherlands have that in their locker to do that meanwhile Belgium if all fit and firing, as we saw in the second half against Denmark, that would be, that could be very, very dangerous for Spain in that um, in that second round. Obviously, the winning of the group now is out of Spain's hands. Spain, it looks more like Sweden now. If Sweden win against Poland, they're in the uh, they're in the driving seat. They'll be top, which would mean a potential quarterfinal with England. But let's not. Um, 
let's not get too far ahead of it. Let's not be too angular biased here. Um, but winning the group would see a third place team in the last 16 from A, B, C or D. So any one of Switzerland, Turkey, Denmark, Finland, Russia, Ukraine, Austria or England themselves, Czech Republic, Scotland or Croatia. Now, it is more likely to be... I'm not even, not even going to venture to try and predict which third place teams are going to qualify, which of course hinges on what team they'll face. But in terms of Sweden, you'd probably fancy them. The Sweden-Denmark Class 16 tie would be absolutely superb. That I'd be entirely all the way there for that one. Um, but in terms of playing Ukraine or Austria as well, especially Ukraine, that would be a nice tie to watch as well. Alternatively, Croatia-Sweden. I think that's what I predicted in the team previews. I don't know, you'll have to come back and tell me, but I'm pretty sure I, uh, I had Croatia on that one. But now as the tournament's gone on, I'd probably fancy Sweden to win that one. If they finish second, or if whoever finishes in second in Group E will face second place in Group D. Now, before the tournament started, everyone was saying from an English perspective, finish second, it's the better better pathway. Now, if you're England, you'd rather play Spain, I think, rather than Sweden, which historically over the past decade and a half, you wouldn't not say that at all. Um, but Sweden are, will sit in, they'll play like Scotland, so from an England perspective. I think that's more damaging to England to play them than Spain because Spain will want to come out and play. I think England uh, will have the beating of Spain. They obviously beat them in um, in Spain in the Nations League. Obviously, Spain beat England at Wembley. This game would be played at Wembley, of course. I think, no, it won't. It'll be played in uh, somewhere else. But uh, England, Spain, I think England would be the favourites for that one. Whether or not they'll beat them is a different matter, but I think I'd be confident from an England perspective. Alternatively, though, they could play, of course, Czech Republic, Croatia, or Scotland as it stands now, probably. <laughs> Again, that's difficult to predict, isn't it? I'm not even going to venture to uh, predict that. Slovakia need a draw to finish in the top two. Or rather, yeah, they need a draw to finish in the top two because they beat Poland and that head-to-head record will go for them there. Sweden are all but through, really. You'd, I wouldn't even think they'd... Uh, they wouldn't finish third. I can't see them finishing third because it'd mean a Slovakia point in Spain. I still think Spain will click into gear at some point. Even if they don't click into gear, I think they'll uh, go over the line against Slovakia. It could be a bit like not to drag it towards England again, but like 2010, England draw their first game, scrape over the line against Slovenia, 1-0. They go through, obviously get pumped off Germany, but that's another story. <laughs> but uh, that's how Spain get through, I think, in my mind right now. Because uh, they're not going to be free scoring even against Slovakia, a team that everybody wrote off, me included, at the start of the championships. And let's not forget, Slovakia are very good defensively. And uh, from set pieces, they're very good as well. Where obviously Spain will be lacking slightly. So let's preview today's action. And it is the conclusion of Group A. As we know it, the third match days are finally upon us. And Switzerland versus Turkey, Italy versus Wales. Now, we said last time... Turkey are practically at home in Baku and that will give them an advantage against Wales and that obviously was not the case, was it? This is a more crucial game. Switzerland haven't looked at the races thus far in the tournament. did perform quite well in Baku in the baking Baku heat and it'll be similar temperatures this time round. They do have a chance. Turkey technically do, but they need a lot to go their way. They need to win by a five-goal margin and if they don't win by a five-goal margin, they need two of the following to happen to get fourth place in the third place standings. They need Finland to lose heavily and Denmark to fail to win. They need Austria or Ukraine to heavily lose. They need Croatia and Scotland to draw, which have both of them on two points. And then if they win, 
go above them in the third place standings need Slovakia to lose heavily, uh, Spain and Poland to drop points and they need Portugal and Hungary to lose heavily. So they need a lot to go for them to even get into the last 16. Obviously, they need a win against Switzerland on the alternatively. Switzerland need a win. Meanwhile, a draw will put them both out. Um, Switzerland, I think this is the biggest. This is the more interesting game of the two. Obviously, I don't think I'll be... I'll have one eye on Switzerland-Turkey on the, on the uh, phone. I'll be putting Italy and Wales on the TV, I think. Now... I'm not saying Wales should throw the game, but Wales should definitely throw the game. Not by too much. You don't want Switzerland, from a Welsh perspective, you don't want Switzerland to overtake them. But for me, second place, it wouldn't take a lot for Wales to throw the game, of course, because Italy are very, very good. They're probably the best performing team at the tournament so far. Now, I'm not to say that they'll win it. I don't think they've been tested like other teams have, but um, second place would feed whoever comes second into a nice, a comfortable quarter of the draw. It leaves them facing the runner-up of Group B, which would be a, a winnable game. A, a, if not a winnable game, then a, a comfortable game for them in Denmark, Finland or Russia. Whilst if Wales won the group, they would face the runner-up of Group C, being that Ukraine and Austria. Probably Ukraine at this stage, you'd probably say, which is um, probably a harder game. Obviously, frame of mind in terms of Denmark, you don't know what's going to happen there, do you really? Uh, Finland... Very difficult uh, fixture as well. Russia, probably the easiest one of that one. So the difference in quarterfinal is why you'd want to finish second. If you win the group, it's Belgium. If you finish second, it's the Netherlands. And Netherlands probably slightly easier drawing that one. Of course, if they do somehow finish third, it's potentially the winner of Group B or Group E, which at this stage is probably Belgium. And it's probably, let's say, Sweden. It's probably going to be Sweden, isn't it? Wales have stunned teams before in this tournament. They can easily do it again. And we'll be back tomorrow to cover it all, of course we will. Wales and Italy, Switzerland and Turkey, and we'll be previewing, of course, the conclusions of Group B and Group C. Until tomorrow, Sidi, Cymru and Biff. Sports Social Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.